Thanks for listening to the Faith Church Podcast. We are one church at five locations, streaming online every Sunday morning at live.faithishere.org. We hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. And if you'd like to watch or listen to previous messages, or if you'd like to learn more about who we are as a church and how you can stay connected, head over to faithishere.org. Welcome to Faith this morning. Great to have you guys here today. Hope you're staying cool this summer and uh, enjoying this heat wave we're having. Hang around the water and stay hydrated, all right? That's my tip for the day. Uh, Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. That's what we're talking about. That's the theme of our series. America is a mess, and we're talking about it and what's going on. You know, that came from the Declaration of Independence. And, and the writer said that these life, liberty, pursuit of happiness were inalienable rights endowed to us by our creator. Now, here's the problem. For the last 50 years, we've been trying to kick the creator out of America. We don't want him in our schools anymore, don't want him in our government buildings anymore, don't want the Ten Commandments posted anywhere, can't pray anywhere. And, and so we have systematically been trying to kick God out of America. So what does the church do? I believe this is the greatest hour for the church to lift up the standard very high, and that standard is the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus made this statement, he said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. So how, how do we reinsert God in America? We simply, all we have to do is simply lift him up in our lives, in our witness, in our testimony, in our prayers, and then changes will begin to happen and begin to take place. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But it's going to cost us. It's going to cost us. And the question for us this morning, are we willing to pay that price? I want you to take your Bibles out and turn to Romans chapter 12 this morning. Very familiar passage of Scripture. Let's stand together once again for the reading of God's Word today. And if you're a guest, we're so glad you're here. If you're watching by television today or streaming live, we welcome you guys as well. So great to have you tuning in this morning. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. Now, the therefore, always ask yourself, why is it therefore? And for the first 11 chapters, he talks about the sinfulness of man, the grace of God, sanctification, justification, what it means to be holy, what it means to be justified, and these great passages in the book of Romans. And so he says, therefore, in view of all that I've just told you about God's grace, what is our response? Well, he goes on to tell us, therefore, I urge you in view of God's mercies to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. In other words, give yourself back to God. God gave everything for you. The least we can do is to present ourselves back to him for use for his service. To give your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Let's pray. Father, we want to be right in the center of your will today. God, I pray that as you open up the word of God to us this morning through your Holy Spirit, that you will speak to our hearts and lives, that you'll do a a work inside of us. We need you so desperately, God, today. 
Help us, Lord Jesus. Help America, God. Help us to be your lights, we pray. We ask it all in your holy, mighty name. Amen and amen. Turn to someone, tell them they look great, and then you may be seated this morning. One of the oldest forms of thievery was something known as the shaving of weights. In the Old Testament, when you would go to buy grain or you'd go into the store or wherever it was, be, even though through the New Testament, the early Roman Empire, you would have, they measured out your food, they measured out your grain, they measured out whatever you were buying by a balance scale. You've seen the old balance scales, and they would put the one pound weight on the other side, and then put your food on the other side. And you knew you got a pound of food or whatever it was you were buying or two pounds or five pounds by how when the weights finally balanced out. But often what the merchants would do in order to save more of their food and sell less of it for the same amount of money, they would come along and underneath the weights they would shave the weights down. So that when a weight set a pound, it didn't really weigh a pound, it only weighed 14 ounces or 12 ounces, and that way when you put and balance it out, you thought you were buying a pound, but you're really buying 12 ounces of food. And so that is one of the very oldest forms of thievery known to man. It's just shaving the weights off of the scales, unbalancing the scales. Now, Proverbs 11.1, listen to this. The Lord abhors dishonest scales, but accurate weights are his delight. Now, where God hates your thievery, hates your dishonesty. He hates uh, unbalanced scales. He hates that. And so that's the backdrop to that Proverbs of 11. But accurate weights, when it's right, when it's accurate, when it's according to the standard, the accepted standard, then he delights in that. Here's the problem. The characteristic of our generation is we have been shaving the weights down and lowering the standard. The standard is not what it used to be. Go back one generation Take a look and see how the standards in America have changed. We've been shaving the weights off. God and his word are absolute and unchangeable standards of right and wrong. This is true. This is yea and amen. It will always be true. It will never pass away. And this is our guidebook and our rule for living. And and so no matter how much we try to accommodate society or the generation in which we live in the name of tolerance or political correctness, there is still a right and wrong according to the word of God. We've lowered the standard. We have been dropping the standards over these past generations. It is unchangeable. When you take God out of the equation, it affects more than just whether you go to church or not on Sunday morning. In fact, when you take God out of the equation, everything you believe about right and wrong begins to change. The standards drop. And so we've been trying to kick them out, kick them out of America, and kick them out of the equations, and we watch the standards go down systematically in America today. If you lower the standards enough, everyone will pass the morality test. Everybody's in. Everybody passes. No right or wrong. We're all going to make it. Nothing is good. Nothing is bad. We are free to do whatever we want to do according to our own standards or according to the dictates of my own heart and my own mind. But God says there is a right and wrong. And the word of God said he is the judge and on the last days he will separate the righteous from the wicked. There's no getting around that, my friends. He is the one who weighs the nations in the balance. 
Remember Belteshazzar when he had the, had the vision and he wrote down on the wall and Daniel came in and he saw the handwriting on the wall and he didn't know what it meant and so Daniel interprets the, the, the handwriting on the wall and he says, because you are turned to idolatry, judgment is coming upon this land. And he makes this statement, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. And judgment's gonna come to the nation of Babylon. You see, the greatest sin of this generation is putting someone else's down. And so we're not to put anybody else down or talk about anybody else, and I'm not talking about gossip or malicious speech here against another person, but what we say is don't make anybody feel bad. Don't impose your standards. Don't judge others regardless of how lazy they are how inadequately they perform, or how perverted they become. Just don't judge anybody else. And the truth is, sin is making our nation sick and crazy. We don't want anyone to feel bad. Now, I I don't know, it wasn't necessarily when I was a kid, because I was always on the losing team. I don't remember ever getting any trophies, but my kids were coming up, the teams they were on were terrible. They were the worst teams. They got beat by everybody. But what do we do? At the end of the year, they all get a trophy. You get a trophy for losing. Guess what? You lost all your games. Here's your trophy. And they didn't care. They just wanted the pizza party afterwards and something to set on their mantle. But we don't want them to feel bad about themselves so everybody gets a trophy. And I think that's kind of the way the mentality, and that's probably okay if you're kids, but the mentality in America is everybody gets a trophy. Everybody goes to heaven. It doesn't matter what you do. No matter how bad you live, somehow we're going to preach you right into heaven at your funeral time. Been lowering the standards systematically over the years. Everyone gets a trophy. This logic is carried over to our relationship with God. And so here's what happens in the church. Now listen to me. What is the minimum I need to do in order to make heaven? We may not say that out loud, but that's the way we live our lives and that's the way we think. What is the least I can do and still make it to heaven? Listen, I read Romans 12, 1. Therefore, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Lay down your life for the gospel and the kingdom of God. Give your all, give your heart, mind, soul, and strength uh, for God's glory and for God's use in his kingdom. Don't see how little I can do and see if I can still make heaven. You understand what I'm saying? Not like, and and look at the last part of this verse, and I want to read it to you again. He says, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. Look at these last three words, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, here's the mindset some have when they look at the scripture. They think, well, I may have his permissive will, I may have his good will, and I may have his acceptable will, and he may let, let me get by with this, but I'm not really living in the middle of his perfect will. Listen, this is not like buying a car and checking out the tires and saying these are good, bad, medium, great, or whatever. This is, this is three ways to describe the very same thing. He's not giving you three choices of God's will. God's will is clear and God's will is direct. It's not his lesser will and his medium will and we're going to get to the highest will. These are three synonyms for the same thing. His will is good. 
His will is perfect. His will is acceptable. His will is good in his sight. It is three ways of saying the very same thing. We are not setting standards for choosing which will we opt into. Understand what I'm saying? Let, let, me, let me share another point. Some people say, I will accept Jesus as my Savior because I don't want to go to hell. I want the fire insurance, but he's not really my Lord. I don't know if there is such a category as Savior but not Lord. I don't see that anywhere in the Word of God. When Christ becomes your Savior, he is your Lord. He takes over. Your body belongs to his. You're not your own anymore. You're bought with a price. He paid for it with his own shed blood. You don't have that option of Savior, but not Lord. I want to talk to you a little bit about compromise this morning and the anatomy of compromise. I want to tell you a story from the Old Testament as we look at this and how the, the, the foundations have slowly eroded and how the framework is, the standards have been dropping all along the way. It's a story of Abraham and his nephew Lot. Abraham and Lot, they, uh, God says, Abraham, Abraham, I want you to leave the country you're in. I want you to leave the Ur of the Chaldees, and I want you to go to the land I'm going to give you, a land I'm going to show you. I will make of you a great nation. Your seed will be like the stars in the sky, like the sand on the earth, and I'm going to bless you. I'm going to multiply you, and I've got a promised land for you. So they set out. And Abraham goes on the journey, and his wife goes, and their family goes, and all their servants go. And he takes along with him his nephew, a young man by the name of Lot. And Lot's wife goes, and they all head off, and they're going to go together to the promised land. But what happens is God's blessings are so strong and profound on Abraham that his, his cattle and sheep and all his flocks are growing, and all the stuff he has is growing, and you've got these two families living together. And so they're all in the same place and they're all in the same tents, and they're, and they're fighting with each other. And Lot's servants are fighting with Abraham's servants, and their kids are fighting with each other, and, and there's just not enough room. This town wasn't big enough for the both of them. And so, so they said, here we are. We're coming close to the land. Lot, you take the side you want to go on. I'll take my family, and we'll go on the other side, and you take your choice. Now let's turn, if you would, to Genesis 13 and verse 9. I want to read that to you. Genesis 13 and verse 9. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Your choice, Lot. Lot looked up. He saw the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered, like the garden of the Lord. Like the land of Egypt towards Zoar. This was the Lord, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out towards the east. The two men parted company. Abraham lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. Okay, now you get this scene here. Abraham says, Lot, you choose. Well, he's, he's going to go for the better-looking land. Better to raise his crops, better to raise his family. Well-watered, beautiful, lush gardens. The only trouble was in that plain of the Jordan was located a couple very wicked cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he's going to set up camp right outside the city of Sodom. And so there he is. First of all, he chooses chooses the best-looking land, the best-looking place. Then he pitched his tent, the Bible says, towards 
Sodom. Now that's as far as we read in the scripture today. So he sets his family up in the valley. They pitch their tents towards that city. But there's a footnote right there in the middle of the passage. He tells us Sodom was a very, very wicked city and all its inhabitants were very, very wicked. But this is exactly where he wanted to put the view on his front porch. He wanted the the tent with a view. And he puts it towards the bright lights and the big city and all the action and all the activity. And they see the nightlife going on and it's pretty exciting in there. And the torches are lit and they hear the music playing. And, and, and it goes on. And I won't, don't have time to read every passage to you. But before long, Lot and his entire family are living now right in the middle of the city. Starts by making that choice. Want the well-watered plains. Don't care who lives around there. Don't care what the environment is. Just want the, the fertile ground. Then he looks towards the city, he gazes on that, he wants that, and by the time later when Abraham is going to pray for the city, Lot and his entire family are now living inside the city. They are inhabitants of that city. When people turn away from God's highest call in their lives, when they decide against a life of faith, now you are contrasting Lot's choice with Abraham's faith. Abraham is the father of faith, and so he is going to trust in God wherever God is going to plant him and use him. And they set off in opposite directions. Now, here's the deal. When you begin to compromise and you get in on the little things, things may go well for a while. Everything's good. Land's good. Plenty of water. Plenty to eat and drink. Everything's going to go good for a while with that subtle little compromise. Everything's going to work out in the beginning. Listen, a person doesn't backslide in one day. Backsliding is a gradual progression, day after day, compromise after compromise after compromise. And before you know it, you are living within the city walls of Sodom. As time goes by, inch by inch, they're moving towards the city. Compromise. What is compromise? Compromise is when I have a conviction about what is right and wrong directed by the word of God and the Holy Spirit and I violate that or go against that conviction, then I am compromising my faith. I'm I'm giving in on what God has showed me how to live and, and what to do with my life. In other words, you may have a conviction. I I wanna only watch wholesome movies. I want to only watch what is good. I don't want to hear the bad language. I don't want to be, uh, see the sexual. I don't want to see the violence. Uh, but you are around a whole bunch of friends, and they all say, hey, we're all going out to a movie tonight. I uh, want you to come along and go with us, you and your girlfriend, or you and your husband or wife. We want you to go together. We're going to go out to eat. We'll go watch the movie. We'll hang out together. Now, at that moment, you are under the pressure. Do I make a stand and say, you know what, I just don't want to hear that stuff, buddy. I just don't want to see the, even though it's only one sex scene, even though it's only ten bad words, even though it's only this or that, and we justify not to risk our friendship, we just hop in the van and we go along with them and we all park ourselves. And the whole time you're sitting there in that movie theater and it's dark, you're looking around, who's seeing me in here now? Listen, God sees you. It's what he thinks that matters. So what are we going to feed our mind with? Kids, you're in high school and you're sitting there and, and, and you're taking a test. And you've studied, but I want to tell you, number eight is stumping you. But you know what? The guy next to you and the desk next to you, there's number eight. It's at that moment you can look at number eight and write down true or false. Or you can keep your eyes on your own paper. 
It's in that moment, in that time, expediency outweighs our better judgment. And we, we reason and we relax. Well, he should have his paper covered. It's his fault, not mine. Thank you very much. I didn't know that question. And so cheating begins, and it starts very slowly. And pretty soon, the class in front of you is collecting extra test paper, and you collect it, and you take it back home, and you've got every answer aced because you get the test in advance. I know. I did that one time in high school. <laughs> Happens easily, subtly, gradually, but you've got to get the grade in order to play ball. Your work, boss is all over your case. He says, don't put all the income in there. Just put a percentage of the income. Just hide some of the income. Just cook the books a little bit because the more income I show, the more I'm going to be taxed. And so let's just go ahead and play with the numbers and play with the figures and let's just put down what we need to to get by. And the compromise begins and it starts. And your conscience is ripped apart. But after all, I had to please my boss, and so we don't make a stand. A little white lie, a little unconfessed sin, a little drugs, just a little bit of marijuana, just a a little bit here won't really hurt me. Just a little pornography, I'll look. I won't really get involved in it heavily. I'll just watch this one night because I'm all by myself. Uh, just, Just a little bit of sin. Turn to Romans chapter 14 and verse 23. And I, I've preached on these gray areas before, but, but, but Romans is clear about, about what to do when you face these kind of things that we might not totally understand. Listen to this, verse 23. But the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats because he is eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. So Abraham is living a life of faith. He's trusting God, following God, going where God has planned him. But Lot is not operating out of faith. He's operating out of luxury, convenience, and excitement. And Pretty soon he is inside the city walls. Sodom was not a great place to live. The Bible says the people had thrown off all restraints to the point that their sin is now begging for God's judgment. 2 Peter 2 and 8 says, Lot was tortured in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and he heard. Whatever you compromise to keep, you wind up losing. Now let me say that again. Whatever you compromise to keep or hang on to, you wind up losing. Lot is fleeing the city for his life. He started out with his wife and two daughters. His wife is so attached to what she had grown accustomed to and a part of, she looks back. And she is destroyed right there on the spot. Now listen, Lot never intended to lose his wife. He never thought where he pitched his tent. He never thought where he moved his family to was really going to matter or make a difference in the long run, but it did. And that gradual compromise, inch by inch by inch, caused him to lose it all compromise now on the other hand I want to talk to you then about how do we respond how do we live and so it's all about our discipleship discipleship 
And what does God call from us? Present your bodies. Give your whole life, give your whole self, give your whole being to me as a living sacrifice. Now, it's interesting. When Jesus called people to follow him, he called them in different ways. Now, I want you to follow this. It's not the same for everybody. Talking about standards, but I don't want to confuse you here. For example, there's a rich young ruler. What does the rich young ruler, what's his requirement to be a disciple? He says, go, sell all your stuff, come follow me, then you can be my disciple. Then you can, you can be my school of discipleship, but you got to get rid of everything. Now, he doesn't tell everybody that, but the rich young ruler had this money thing set up as an idol in his heart. And for him, that's what you've got to lay aside. That's the stumbling block. That's the obstacle. That's the one thing that's keeping your heart from my heart. Okay? The woman caught in adultery. She's fornicate. She's in adultery. She's caught in the act. And Jesus says to her, neither do I condemn thee. But he goes on to say, go and sin no more. So for her, the calling was, leave your life of adultery. Leave your life of sexual promiscuity. Leave that behind. If you're going to be my disciple or my follower, these are some things you cannot do if you're going to follow me. So that was the thing that she had to lay aside. Tracking with me here? To some, he just simply said, only believe. Only believe. There were no requirements. There were no things they had to do. He just says, just believe me. Just trust in me. To others, he said, if any man is going to follow me, he's going to forsake father or mother or family or self or forsake everything. Whoever would be my disciple must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For some, it would even cost them their relationship with their own families. And I want to tell you, this happens all the time in the Islamic world. When people say, I'm going to follow Jesus Christ, immediately they are disowned by their family. And Jesus says, when it comes right down to it, if you've got to make a choice, it's going to be me. At first glance, it may not seem fair or even consistent, but Jesus knows the hearts of each one he spoke to. He knew exactly where they were at. And when someone's motive was negative or or, or to try to live at the lowest possible standard, he always upped the standard and raised it. He said, don't just see how little you can get by with. I want your life. I want your everything. And he raised the standard. To those whose hearts were already set to love God and follow him, he just simply said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come unto me, all ye that are labor and are heavy laden. He knows exactly where you're at. He knows that one thing that is standing between you and God and going all the way with him. So he's very clear about that cost of discipleship. There was a lady in the word of God, the Bible says she was just simply a sinner. She, it describes her as a sinner. And when the Bible says that about a woman, uh, the, the inference there is she was involved in prostitution. Okay, And so she burst into the house, and what does she do? She begins to wash the feet of Jesus Christ. They're in a Simon's house, and he's a rich dude, and there's all these fancy people around. And right in the middle, she bursts in, and she begins to wash his feet, wipe them off with her hair and her tears, and she is, breaks the alabaster box. She's crying over Jesus. It's, it's an incredible scene right there. The, the whole room is filled with the fragrance of that anointment, that odor, and when she puts on Jesus Christ. And Jesus says this, therefore I tell you, her sins are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. 
It's all about our heart. It's not about this rule or that rule or this regulation or that regulation. It's not about my list of do's and don'ts. It's about I have a heart after God that wants God more than anything else. And it may mean laying aside those things that hold us back. Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. To be his disciple means our hearts follow after him. Now, when you aim at the lowest level, when you aim on a Christianity that says, if I just do enough to get by, it shows that even though you may do a lot of good things, your heart's headed in the wrong direction. Okay? You're in there with minimum standards and you're just trying to get by so you can make heaven. It's saying, my heart is not after Jesus. My heart is really after Sodom. And we got believers who are trying to play it both ways and they're riding the fence and it's a tough place to ride on that fence. And they don't give their all to God. I like what the apostle Paul said. I press towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. I just press, I pursue, I run with every ounce of energy in me. Because God is everything. Jesus is everything. I want to be with him, I want to know him, that's my life, that's my passion. Years after Lot and Abraham separated, God comes to Abraham Abraham, there's two other angels with Jesus, probably a pre-incarnate revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to show you what I'm going to do. Because the wickedness of Sodom has rised up to me. It's, i got to take that cancer from off the earth. i got to destroy that city. And, and, and Abraham begins to cry out for God, I think primarily because he knows his nephew's sitting right inside the city gates. He says, God, if there would just be 50, will you save the city for 50? And he starts this incredible intercession. And by the way, in two weeks, I want to talk about intercessory prayer for America. And you'll probably hear a little bit about Abraham again. But, but he cries out, if there's 50, if there's just 40, if there's 30. And he gets it all the way down to 10 people. He says, if there are 10 people, just 10, please don't destroy the city. Now, here's what I want to get across. By this time, Lot had been in that city for years. And he had not, let, he had not led 10 men to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, sometimes we have a mentality, if I act like the world and I'm in the world and I'm doing what they do, then I can lead them to Jesus Christ. And it doesn't happen. And after years... There's nobody left. In fact, he starts with four, and after all those years of being in Sodom, he winds up with three. He loses one. One of the effects of compromise is your words have no power. Once you compromise and act like the world and talk like the world and live like the world, then your testimony is compromised. It is lost. It has no effectiveness. When Lot finally tried to take a stand at the very end. Now look at this. He tries to warn his children about impending judgment. And so he says, ladies, by this time they've married men in Sodom. They've married their husbands. Get your husbands. we got to get out of the city. 
God's going to destroy it. Now, even if the two husbands go along, you'll have six righteous left in Sodom. But look at what this, it says. The son-in-laws thought he was joking. They did not listen to his warning because they'd watched his life for all those years and really saw no distinct difference. His words had no impact. When you live what you preach, it puts power in your words. But no one takes a compromiser seriously. The power of your words to influence people around you is determined by the sincerity of your faith. Faith. Do you really have faith in God and is that faith exhibited in your life? Don't talk the talk if you don't walk the walk because they won't listen to you. They say, well, pastor, aren't we supposed to be in the world as a witness? Yes, but the Bible is very clear. He says you are in the world, but you are not of the world. You are in the world, but you are not of the world. Jesus himself was a friend of sinners. He hung around a lot of rough places. He sat in their homes, ate with them, broke bread with them, spent time with sinners. But you can't compromise your faith in Christ in order to be accepted by the world. And there are times that you've just got to say, no, I can't go there. I can't do that. I won't be a part of that. If you compromise, your witness will have no power to change lives. Yes, we need to reach out to those who are living in Sodom. But we can never hide our commitment to Christ to do it. I want to challenge you, church, this morning. Listen to me. If you're going to follow Christ, go all the way. Be all in. It's it's an exciting life. It's an awesome life. It's having Christ with you. It's his presence. It's his life in you. It's, it's, It's my future's taken care of. It's no worries. I've got a good, good father who's going to take care of me. It's the most exciting, abundant life you can ever know. Life filled with joy and Life filled with peace. Don't sell that short. Don't let yourself fall into a minimum standard mentality of discipleship. Good works and good plans are not enough. Settle for nothing less than following God's good and perfect and acceptable will. Follow God's will all the way for your life. Present yourself to him, a living sacrifice. Give him your heart, give him your mind, give him your will, give him your emotions. Give it all to God. It's worth it. Now when the church does that, when we do that, the world sees a difference. They want what you got. They want to get out of that city. They want to get out of that addiction. They want to get out of that trap of iniquity. They, 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 want, they want to follow because they see something new and different and exciting in your life. Give it all to Christ. Hallelujah. Bow your heads and close your eyes, if you would, for just a moment. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. God, I love you so much. God, you are so good. God, we bless your name. Thank you, Jesus. Thanks for listening to this weekly podcast. Check out faithishere.org for podcasts and videos of our previous messages.